welcome to the Supply Chain Careers Podcast, the only podcast for job seekers, professionals, and students who are focused on career-enhancing conversations and insights across all aspects of the supply chain discipline. This podcast is made possible by SCM Talent Group, the industry-leading supply chain executive search firm. Visit SCM Talent Group at scmtalent.com. To search for or to post supply chain jobs, visit the Supply Chain Job Board at supplychaincareers.com. I'm your podcast co-host, Mike Ogle. And I'm your podcast co-host, Rodney Apple. In this episode of the Supply Chain Careers Podcast, we are joined by Stephen Rudnicki, Senior Manager of Global Planning and Scheduling, Global Materials at Westinghouse Electric Company. Steve shares his supply chain career journey through several companies prior to his 15 years at Westinghouse in their nuclear fuels business. Steve provides career advice about how to understand other perspectives, the challenges of coordinated global planning, the art of delegation, how to get a mentor and be a mentor, plus the value of chemistry for a team. He shares several challenges he met by thinking very differently about possible solutions, plus understanding new career challenges to be faced. As an adjunct professor, he also provides his advice to students about learning how to learn, being curious and open to new opportunities, plus knowing how to challenge data assumptions. Steve, we're happy to have you with us today. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. How did you get started on your own supply chain career journey? What were some of your greatest influences that got you started and helped you along the way? My supply chain journey actually started back in the 80s. We really didn't even call it supply chain back then. I actually got in because I moved from project management over into running a manufacturing operation, but it was a job shop operation. And so by default, I ended up planning my workday every day and kind of what I needed to accomplish at the end of the week. And it didn't take long to figure out that if you didn't have the people in purchasing run into the same tune that you were, you could set up a great plan and find out the raw materials weren't coming in or it was going to show up a day later than you wanted. After that job, I was actually working in another facility as the production manager. And the guy who was in charge of planning, he and I didn't see eye to eye on philosophies of how things should get done. So there was a running battle for about a year in which meetings were acrimonious and We would get stuff done, but it certainly wasn't considered collaborative. And finally, the owner of the company just got fed up with us one day. And he hauls both of us into his office. And he turns to me and he says, you're in charge of planning. And he turns to the other guy and says, you're in charge of production. I'm sick and tired of listening to you two guys argue. You can wear each other's shoes. Now get out there and go do your jobs. And that was the end of the intro. What we both learned in the end, and we were both type A personalities. That was painfully obvious. but that we both wanted the right thing. We were arguing about which side of the mountain we were going around to get there. And the learning I got out of that was, it's okay to take a different approach as long as you get to the end result. It doesn't have to be your approach. In the end, it was funny because he and I would laugh. In fact, I actually spoke at his funeral telling people that we didn't really get along when it came to a lot of stuff. But we both wanted the same thing. And we respected each other for the fact that we wanted the same thing. We may not agree on how the method was going to be, 
But we would eventually go, okay, you get to win this time and I get to win the next time. And that really got me into understanding how production and planning supply chain purchasing really interfaced. And that tie together was so important that if you could really get that sequencing good, you could really make both ends of the world run much, much better. I see you've been in sales and operations planning roles in an industry that a lot of people probably don't know much about. Walk us through global SNOP, paint the picture for the audience. With the traditional SNOP, the five-step process, depending on what you read, it's either step one is all data gathering and all that, or there's a version that step one is product management or life cycle. And a lot of what we do in step one, we really focus on that product life cycle and where are we at? What are we introducing? Because there's a lot of engineering going on and new products that are coming out maybe this year or something we're working on that's not going to come out for four or more years, but we better keep an eye on it. And then, of course, as you do that, you get the natural obsolescence. Okay, we're replacing this. What do we do about inventory and all that? So our first process is really to make sure everybody puts all their cards on the table and everybody knows what all the different organizations are doing and where we think our products are going to go lifecycle-wise in the future and make sure everybody's playing to the right page. Then we get to the second meeting, which is the demand review. And again, being a global organization, I have to interface with our Sweden operations. We have three business units, EMEA, which is Europe, Asia, and then, of course, the Americas. And we tie all of that not only on the fuel end, which is our primary business, but then there are things called core components that reactors use that aren't actually fuel itself. And then we get into sub-products, which may be fuel components or tubing or zirconium that we sell. And so we really work on getting that whole big picture. But our industry is a slow industry because we're dealing with utilities and because we're dealing with regulators. It takes a very long time to make a change in our industry. So for instance, we won the contract to take over uh, Sequoia nuclear fuel. It takes two and a half years to transition from the previous vendor to us in the U.S. market. And there's all sorts of regulatory stuff that has to happen, but you see it coming and you've got to be looking that far out to go, okay, this is going to be an increase to the business. Or if you lose something in two years, this is the last time we're going to do any of that and try to keep that big picture in alignment so that when we move to the third business meeting, the supply review, we've got three major plants uh, in the U.S., over in Sweden and in the U.K., and then you start deciding how that's getting parsed out and we're vertically integrated so that with the fuel operations, we'll now reach back into component operations, which will reach back into tubing operations, which will reach back into zirconium material operations and keeping that entire vertical supply chain aligned. And again, our business plan reaches out five years, uh, which is longer than the traditional but I look out actually 20 years because capital projects could take eight years from the time somebody says, yep, we're building one to when it actually gets constructed. So I'm taking these 10-year views out as part of that process. And then the supply folks are looking at that, doing the whole resource planning. Do we have the footprint that supports this and all of that? You get into the 
financial reconciliation. What do the changes mean? And then finally, the management business review. These are our hard points. This is the approach we want to take. This is the effect on inventory, or this is the risk we want to take in the supply area, and then roll it right over the next month. We, we kind of have a running joke that we know what we're going to do. We're just not dead sure when we're going to do it. And so <laughs> there's an internal volatility that really causes us to constantly make sure that everybody's in alignment. So the fuel contract isn't going to change, but when the customer wants it delivered to their power plant is a very critical thing in our industry. Some people want it right at the last moment because they want to just literally get it in and shove it right in the reactor. Others want to get it two months in advance because they want it off their checklist of things to do during an outage. And so you literally have to negotiate with every customer. And that puts volatility into the total demand. The timing and customers don't want to talk about the timing until it gets within six months of them actually doing the reload. So you're always guessing out in the future. So there's a lot of internal volatility that you wouldn't see on the external aspect of the business. You'd go, this is a pretty steady state business. There are companies that would kill to know what they're going to do nine years from now. (laughs) So those demand signals can get a bit tricky. A good chunk of my job is to make sure that I catch those movements and get them communicated well so that if there needs to be a change in supply, et cetera, they aren't caught flat-footed going, when did that contract move up three months? My first job, which was in the machine tool business, was probably a two-year window You know, from the time somebody would sign to the point where we would actually install it on their shop floor. But this is significantly a longer window than that. And what would you attribute to preparing for a role like that? Did you guys build that internally? Did you have outside consulting help? You've been in that role for a while, and I'm sure it's evolved and it's gotten better and better over the years. We actually brought in Oliver White. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The driver for it was... Again, getting the alignment on the vertical integration. We would make decisions on the fuel plant end of it that would throw our component and our tubing plants off the cliff, and we'd be oblivious to it. We just assumed that they could react to it, and then they'd be running around in a fire drill, and then we'd change our mind again type of thing. We're now owned by Brookfield Partners, and they put in a really good management system that truly believes in this and are really driving it from the top down. And you always read that in SNOP. It's really not a ground-up process. It's got to be a top-down. I can vouch that we fought a ground-up process for years. And it would get to a certain level, but it was a supply chain process, not a company process. And crucial that it's a company process. And we're still, for a lot of practical purposes, a big, giant job shop. Part of our frustration with SNOP, too, was it just didn't seem to be as user-friendly for a job shop environment. It was good for collecting product lifecycle and demand and then kind of fell apart after that. We could maybe force it up to the supply and that would be about as far as it would go. And, And steps four and five were almost non-existent because we just kind of lost the structure of the thing. It was a long journey, but we learned a lot. It's one of those of if you don't succeed, at least you'll learn a few lessons. What were some of the key learnings from that SNOP journey? What did you benefit out of it yourself? I think one of the key learnings is that as you transition, put in systems that are transparent and that your successor can pick up and continue to improve. If you try to build a system that is person-dependent, 
then it evaporates as soon as the person leaves the company. And if you can put in a system that your successor can pick up, as they say, the best way to get promoted is to be able to have somebody replace you. And I think that becomes a critical thing to always look at it from a system point of view and go, okay, if I'm not here, how does someone do exactly what I'm doing with the same robustness coming through the door? Steve, you've also been teaching operations to students at the University of South Carolina. What have you been uh, teaching them and how have you seen them change over the years? I teach what we used to refer to as the basics book of the CPIM certification for APEX. What I find is that it actually takes a lot of the classes that they've taken and ties it all together. I teach seniors, so it ties it all together in a way that they're like, okay, now I understand what this means and what this does and those type of things and why these interface together. So I find that fascinating because you can really see when the light bulbs start going off and people start connecting the dots. What I find in working with the students is that data is now king, right? So there's now the rise of data analytics because getting the data is easy. We have systems that they're gathering so much information that the question is, what do you do with the information? But the real challenge is getting them to look at that information critically and doing a couple of things. One is pressure checking it to go, do I in fact believe the data, right? So I make my students listen to uh, one story about a lady who talks about numbers and measurements and how numbers and measurements are a product of who decided what's in the group and out of the group to be counted. And then what am I trying to prove or disprove? So although you can give a system that can generate a bunch of data, you need to be able to look at it and, and question whether that data makes sense to you and what, what story is that data really telling. And I also tell them, understand the source of the data in the first place. Just because somebody in finance tells you that the inventory carrying costs per part is X, ask them how they came up with X. Are they charging you other overhead that you shouldn't be carrying? But if you're not going to be smart enough to ask, congratulations, it's now in your budget. Or are they giving you a break where you're going, well, wait a minute, you guys aren't even taking into account this type of thing. So understanding where the data comes from, how it's being accumulated, and then doing those critical thinking skills of, so what's this data telling me and what should I do about that? When talking with different businesses, that's what they really want out of the college students is give me the critical thinking skills. We can give them tons of the data. We have processes in place. But we need them to do something with that data afterwards that helps make our processes or our company better. Change is constant and would love to hear your perspective as it relates to careers. What's been one of the more challenging aspects of those changes? I think the more challenging aspect is, again, the flatter organizations and the ability to delegate out to people and be comfortable with the fact that once you delegate out, they may not do that role or that task the way you thought it was going to be done if you did it, right? So you want to tell them what to do, not how to do it. Don't box them into that paradigm that says, I have to do it the same way we've done it for the last 15 years because that's what my boss tells me. The other thing is giving them the ability to make new mistakes. 
Don't make old ones, but make new ones, right? Unless you're challenging how you do things, because I told you what I ultimately want to accomplish and let you go creatively to try to figure out a good methodology to do that. I have to also accept that every now and then you're going to have to reset, give them an environment that allows them to do that. I had a welder once who would come to me with probably about 10 really creative ideas in a year. Seven of them were pretty good. Three of them, not so much. One of the times when he came in, he said, hey, you know that idea I had about such and such? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, ah, it didn't work at all. We need to order more raw material to cover that. I said, do you understand where you went wrong? He goes, yeah, it was a stupid mistake. So I reorder it. And this entire conversation takes place. And there was actually a guy in my office who was listening to this and he gets all done and he goes, that sounded kind of important. And I said, yeah, he scrapped about $20,000 worth of material. And I said, look, he comes in with 10 ideas a year, seven of them are good, three not so much. You know what happens the first time I hammer him when he comes in with a bad idea? The other seven never show up. And as long as his hit ratio is good enough that I've got a return on investment, I'll take a nick every now and then. If you're one of those people who want to control, that's never going to work. People are going to feel suffocated and the process will never grow because we're just trying to repeat what our boss wants to see. If you went back at this point and you were sitting in the student chair, what do you wish that you had known when people come in to teach from industry and the kind of nuggets that you would tell the young Steve to get him started? I think the first thing to really understand is that college is to teach you how to learn. So a student's job is to learn how to learn because you'll be doing that for the rest of your career. Either you learn or you just stop growing. I use the example when I graduated college, I started working for a machine tool company and I was there for about six months. And the vice president of sales engineering comes over to me one day and he says, hey, I got a project for you. I'm like, all right, sounds good. He says, uh, we're going to write a computer simulation program to show the throughput of this $50 million machining system that we're proposing. All right, cool. And he hands me this inch and a half thick manual. And it's a Friday afternoon, by the way. And he says, here's the manual for how the simulation software works. We bought the software a year ago and we've never cracked it open. So nobody in here knows anything. I suggest you start reading the book and start working on it Monday morning because we have an appointment in three weeks. And that was the end of it, right? And so I went home and I digested the whole thing and I came back and Fought my way through it, wrote a computer simulation program, ended up on a Learjet flying from Rockford, Illinois, out to Omaha, Nebraska, and did a presentation to the big dogs and flew back. And it ultimately catapulted me into the Advanced Product Technology Group. We got to play with all the real Uber guys, Uber engineer, Uber mechanical guy, Uber quality guy, and the kid, because I was the 22-year-old kid. I tell my students, how did I end up in that role? And the answer was, because I knew how to learn. And he gave me that book because to me, it was just another course. I needed to digest it. I needed to wrestle it to the ground. I needed to figure it out. If he gave it to somebody who'd been in the industry for 20 years, they'd be like, I don't know how to write computer simulation code. Well, I don't know why you're giving this to me. I had to learn something completely different than what I had done in college. I graduated with a marketing degree, you know, and got into writing computer simulation codes. So 
you need to really learn how to learn because the technologies and everything that's going on, how your company changes, how you change roles and companies, you always have to learn something new. Henry Ford said every five years, you should put yourself in a position where you got to learn something all over again. The other thing which I didn't do, but I tell my students that they should do, is find a mentor out of the gate. I'd never had a mentor. I always figured the work would take care of it. They would see how valuable I was and all of that. And the answer was it did to a certain extent, but having a mentor was really the way you moved up in an organization. Somebody who was looking out for you, keeping you from you know, touching the third rail of whatever the corporate politics might have been. You need to find a mentor who's not in your organization, right? Your boss can never be your mentor, which is always the other problem. You need to find somebody that you can go vent to that can literally let it roll off their back because they have no skin in that game. Or they can come and they can go, yeah, I understand, but let me explain something that your boss is never going to tell you. Bah, 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 bah. This is why you're never going to want to do that. Oh, okay. Yeah, that would have been really a bad idea. Yeah, that would have been, right? And again, it's not like he's making a value judgment on you, but he understands the inner workings of the company and can keep you from getting into trouble in different areas. And quite frankly, if he gives you some advice and you don't take it, he isn't insulted either. When it comes to mentorship, some people struggle with finding the first mentor. Any guidance there in terms of how to seek out that first mentor? If it's in the company, I think there's two things. One is if there's someone that you're comfortable with, there just seems to be somewhat of a natural chemistry. The other might be, quite frankly, just asking your peers. Who in the organization do people seem to gravitate to? Worst case scenario, go to HR and go, I'm looking for a mentor because from an HR point of view, there may be upper management people that on their PFP, it's, hey, you need to find somebody to go mentor. We want that to be a learning experience for you. Oh, good. I found a candidate who's looking for a mentor. Let me tie you two people together. As for outside the company, I think it goes back into different organizations. If you get into an organization's fraternities, those type of things, there are people that you could engage with on a networking type basis and, again, get comfortable with their chemistry, your chemistry, and reach out to them. A lot of people, they're willing to, to do it, set the parameters as to what that means. They're willing to, to give you 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour of time, maybe a lunch. Everybody had somebody who helped them on the way up in some way, shape, or form. So a lot of people like to pay it forward. During this short break, we recognize that this podcast is made possible by SCM Talent Group the industry-leading supply chain executive search firm. Visit SCM Talent Group at scmtalent.com. To search for or to post supply chain jobs, visit the Supply Chain Job Board at supplychaincareers.com. From your vantage point, what are two or three of the biggest influences you see changing supply chain careers within the next few years? I'd say the first thing is obviously technology. Right. The more that you get into artificial intelligence, chips for tracking, uh, vendor portals, all those type of things, as that technology grows, you need to be able to harness it and utilize it effectively. That involves an entire learning curve of how your company or how you are going to engage with that and make it an effective tool for you. I think the second thing is sourcing volatility. So we did 
offshoring. Now we're doing nearshoring. You've got uh, the trade wars that came in. You've got now even uh, the climate aspect of interruptions to supply chains. And so that type of volatility is going to cause companies to become more and more nimble on how to approach it. Having those reserves in order to be able to meet the challenge drives you right into the whole risk conversation. Risk management now is becoming the bigger thing. Lean is perfect until it doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, it really doesn't work. So now you start going into, well, I want some security supply, or at least I want a secondary source and those type of things. And how do you do that strategically? Because all that costs you money. The whole reason that Lean was so successful was it really trimmed the dollars out of the process. So now we're going to deliberately add dollars in if we want to have a secondary source that's probably going to cost me more than the primary, but I always want to have a plan B. If I want to have just-in-case inventory as opposed to just-in-time inventory, that's all costs money. And where do we find that tipping point where that cost now starts outliving its usefulness? Understanding how to manage those risks and having those plans and those reserves in place really become more of that strategy type conversation. Back to the critical thinking skills. How do we structure our supply chain internally or externally in order to effectively manage the types of risks that our business is going to be touching on? It's that kind of art that is difficult to teach in the schools. There isn't the right answer. You can put some numbers down and try to approach it and try to get an idea of it, but it's still the fuzzy logic aspect that eventually comes down to expertise and decisions. It does. And one of the things that I do in my class is that after every class, I have a business article that I post that they have to read and reply to on the discussion board. And the object of it is I keep those articles fresh. There's obviously a lot of things happening in the world But I put in articles that are applicable to the specific chapter slash information that we discussed for that day. And what that does is helps them take that concept that we're teaching in the book and then showing how a company applied that concept in a particular situation. And so now there'll be 17 articles that they'll have to read that will take all these different aspects and go, how do you challenge this? The nice thing about textbooks is you know it's coming. The bad thing about the real world is you really don't know it's coming, but you got to be agile enough and have enough tools in your toolkit that you can go, how about if we try this? In addition to some of the articles that you're, you're reading, how are you keeping up with the changes yourself and how do you advise others to keep improving? I love learning. I work out in the morning and I listen to a podcast when I work out. So my go-to is Marketplace, which is a show on NPR for 30 minutes, business show. And then I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. And it's also subscribed to a number of, in my particular case, industry articles. Some are on supply chain, some are obviously on energy that I scroll through every day. And people are like, how do you read all of it? And the answer is, you don't really read all of it. You scroll through and and you'll find one article every 10 that you're like, okay, you keep yourself constantly aware. And as you see these things happening, you can pick and glean things out of that. For my classes, if I find a really interesting article, I'll sit there and make a copy of it, email it to my house account. 
and then figure out, am I going to incorporate it into my slide deck for class, or am I just going to talk about it, or am I going to make the students read it? And I keep this constant flood of articles. I do the same thing with the podcast. I try to find examples that they can relate to, because a lot of those supply chain conversations are applicable beyond just manufacturing. The example, Starbucks, what's the object of their app? Well, that allows them to get an order prior to you showing up so that you walk in, grab your coffee, and leave. It didn't really shorten the process, but what it did was overlap their manufacturing of your specified coffee with your travel time to them. So to you, it's seamless, but they needed to do that because how many students have gone into a Starbucks, looked at the line, and went, I don't have 20 minutes to wait for a coffee. I'm out of here. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, I did that. So it's a supply chain solution to a commercial business. You give them a specification. They're manufacturing a coffee to your spec, and you want it delivered at a certain point in time, which is when you come through the door. I've observed over the years that you need a great team that's diverse and complements one another. What's your, been your experience there, and, and how do you go about evaluating talent and, and bringing out the very best of, of your team? I think two things. One is, you know, obviously, you've got the baseline of, do you have the ability to do the job? Do you have the background? Do you have the knowledge? Do you have all of that? The first thing, and I used to poo-poo this back when I was a younger, but it was really the chemistry. Back when I was trying to find a job out of college, you'd get a rejection letter that would say, well, you know, you're all good, but you know, you just didn't fit. And you're like, oh, come on, you know, at least tell me what the problem was. No, don't go hide behind this. You didn't fit thing. And then as I got older, I realized that fit was almost a critical item. And the analysis I used to use was NASCAR teams. You got talented drivers, you got talented crew chiefs, and yet three cars would perform and one would be a dog. You're like, well, they didn't give them the bad motor. They didn't give them the lousy crew chief. And then you'd find they shuffled crew chiefs around, drivers and crew chiefs. And now all of a sudden, the guy who was a dog is like really flying. And they're like, oh, now the crew chief and the driver are on the same page, et cetera. And you started to learn that chemistry is what really got the team rolling. I interviewed for a manufacturing engineer. I had, at the time, two manufacturing engineers a quality engineer, two manufacturing supervisors, and we did another manufacturing engineer. He had all my bells and whistles. He had everything he needed to do. And so I called the other four folks in and I put them in a room and I said, okay, I'm going to let this guy come in and, and you guys can talk to him for an hour. I don't care what you talk about. I, said, I don't even want to know what you talk about. I'm never going to ask you. So you can tell him anything you want. I said, I only want one answer when you get done, which is, does he fit in? And if he fits in, I'm hiring him. If you guys say, nope, you can't work with him, then he goes to the curb and I'm going to start the process over again. I said, because if you guys aren't going to play nice with him, then it doesn't matter how much I like him or how much I think he can do a good job. He's not going to succeed. I thought that was really important was to get that right chemistry. And then the second thing goes back to that safe place to fail. Tell them what you want to get accomplished and give them the opportunity to try it and, and feel comfortable. One of the ways I used to phrase it was when someone would come in, I'd say, okay, I need you to tell me one of two things. Are you making me aware or do you want me involved? Because if you want me involved, I'm happy to pick up the phone and, and do whatever you need me to do to help drive this. 
If you just want me to be aware because you don't want me surprised, but you think you got a handle on this, that's cool. I will not pick up the phone. I won't send out any emails. I won't run behind your back or anything. However, I will make sure that it's either getting better or you need me involved. And by doing that, that gave them the freedom to come in and go, hey, working on this. It doesn't look like it's going good. I think I can get this thing turned around. But you didn't have to worry that I was going to either go off on them or start sending out emails that were going to be less than helpful for him to get the situation corrected. And by giving them that type of environment, then the team feels comfortable to try new things, to push the edges, and to drive together. And once you do that, the efficiencies and the ability to execute and the challenges that all of a sudden become surmountable all kind of fall into a line because everybody's pulling in the right direction and you don't have that internal friction that's slowing you down. High-performing teams feel comfortable in that microcosm, that we're all pulling together and it works. You see that in sports all the time, that the teams that really gel, not everybody has to be a star. There are some really good role players that allow the star to be the star, and that's why it works. And they don't have their feelings hurt. But on the flip side, if they weren't there, the star wouldn't be doing so well either because nobody's giving them the feed. So I think that's really part of the whole high-performing team. And if you can get that type of environment, then literally people start kind of managing, I won't say managing themselves, but certainly managing the process and supply chain because you're always challenged. You need to be comfortable that every now and then it's not going to work. Learn from it and and go back onto the field and, and continue on. And if you're not comfortable in that type of environment, there's a distinct possibility it's going to chew you up a bit. Do you have a specific example of your own where you faced a challenge like that and what you've learned from it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. One of the companies I worked for, we were basically battling bankruptcy and we were trying to get it sold in the process. The negotiations would say, hey, we're going to close this month. And then, no, it's not going to be this month. We own this month, but we think we'll close it next month type of routine. And so I had this bogey of having to hit X dollars per month in revenue or the bank was going to close the door. What you learn is you get to make the rules because while failure is not an option, failure is certainly a possibility. And uh, so what I ended up doing was set up the, the factory, lined up the game plan for the day, and then I would go to purchasing and say, okay, tomorrow, this is what I'm planning on doing. I need to make sure that everything that's coming through the door, that I need to come through the door, is coming through the door. You need to call every one of the vendors and confirm the deliveries. And so we made this a routine. Well, sure enough, we get to one particular day, and he calls up the vendor, and the guy's like, no, no, man, it's coming Thursday. And I'm like, what do you mean it's coming Thursday? And he's gets on the phone and he says, so they're up in Charlotte and their truck only comes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'm like, we cut the purchase order for Wednesday. You accepted the purchase order for Wednesday. I have an entire plant lined up for Wednesday. I need the material in on Wednesday. He says he can't do it. And I said, hand me the phone. The purchasing guy hands me the phone. And I said, the guy you were just talking to, he tells me that you can't deliver on Wednesday. No, no, trucks come on Thursday. And I said, well, let me tell you, your truck's going to show up here on Wednesday, or I'm never going to buy another piece of material from you again. And you know how I'm going to make sure that that happens? And the guy's like, how? I said, the guy you were just talking to, 
See, when he buys something, all the invoices cross my desk. And if I ever see your company name on another invoice, I'll fire him on the spot. And the guy is funny because the purchasing guy doesn't work for me. And now he's even staring at me with this just horrific look on his face, like, oh, my God, I'm going to get fired. And the guy said, let me talk to Larry again. I'm like, okay. And I hand the phone back to him. Sure enough, the truck shows up on Wednesday. And Larry goes, could you have fired me? I'm like, no, I had absolutely no ability to fire you. I said, but I had no choice. I had to get the material here, and I had to go for broke. So at some point, the rules are what works. And you have to get way out of the creative zone. And sometimes you just can't take no for the answer. Now, granted, if you try to pull that stunt too often, it's going to fail on you. There's no doubt. But I was literally backed up against the wall because we needed it to happen. I had another one where I was doing project management for signage uh, on banks. And so we had 46 locations up in New York. And the bank wanted the unveiling of the new signs all on one night. And of course, the company's like, we can't do that. I mean, we have three installers. How are you going to get around the upper part of New York State and, and get all the signs unveiled? And I looked at the guy and I said, well, we, we can do that. And so he looks at me like, okay, smart guy, how are you going to get that done? And I said, well, I don't need sign installers to unveil signs. I just need enterprising guys with pickup trucks and ladders who want to pull tarps off signs and then call and let me know that the sign's lit. And if it isn't, then the three installers need to hot foot it to wherever that location is and fix the problem. So we hired 20 guys with pickup trucks and got it done in an evening. Now, my boss didn't even think in those terms. He was so locked into the mindset of you need installers to unveil signs that he didn't really approach the problem as all I need is somebody to pull a tarp off a sign. This is not an installation conversation. This is a I want to unveil a sign conversation. So again, reframing the situation to allow a different solution to work. And sometimes in supply chain, that's exactly what you need. What are we really trying to accomplish? Don't tell me the methods we've always used. What are we trying to accomplish? I was forced to be creative. If I could have done it the old-fashioned way, trust me, I would have done it the old-fashioned way. But that option had been removed. Steve, just wanted to see if you had any last minute advice you'd like to share with the audience? If there's anything from your career that just really helped accelerate your career, the floor is yours. I'll say two things. One that I tell my students is be comfortable with challenging your assumptions or having other people challenge your assumptions. People get protective on that. And I said, that happens to me all the time in the business planning perspective. How did you come to that conclusion? Why do you think this type of thing? But it's good because if you pressure check those assumptions, the best thing that happens is after the pressure check, yep, rock solid, no problem. What's the worst thing that happens? You come back and go, we need to think this through again. One of the things that I like about teaching is because teaching can never have that something happens in that wonderful black box, trust me, type conclusion. The students will always ask, well, what happens in that box? at least once a semester, come out of a class and literally told the student, that's really interesting. I've never thought of it in that perspective. I need to go back to work and rethink some of my thought processes. Because you asked a question I've never asked myself at work. And I'm not sure that my solution now is applicable if that question really is valid in my role. So be comfortable with that pressure check because It makes you stronger. It's like weightlifting and you build up strength. If you pressure check your philosophies and how you're doing your job, 
it just makes you a stronger person. You can improve what you need to improve or it validates what you're currently doing. The second is keep your options open. I got into teaching, quite frankly, as we were teaching APEX courses over at the University of South Carolina, and we were renting a room from the university. So they knew that we were doing this type of stuff. And when they decided to get into the supply chain program, the director of that program came to us and said, how would you like to teach this type of material to the undergrads? Okay, that sounds interesting. He goes, you'd be an adjunct professor. And he was talking to my instructor at the time. And we would do it for the fall semester. And so we literally had two weeks to figure out how we were going to approach this. And so we did and worked it all together. And that worked for about three years. And the program grew. At one point, he said, I think we're going to have to start teaching a second class. Would you like to be the guy who teaches the second class? And I said, yeah. And that's what got me in. I've been teaching for five years and as an adjunct. But I got in because I had an MBA, which allowed me in the door because I'd gotten that MBA when I'd gotten out of college because I always wanted to have an MBA. Why? Just in case. Back in the 80s, an MBA was your way to go to corporate Ford or corporate Disney or those type of things. And I never ended up in any of those locations, but I still had that MBA. And as I say, it's the hobby that actually pays for itself. And it keeps me engaged. So I would say never close doors, but always look to those opportunities that seem kind of interesting. It was a bit of a risk, but things that are exciting typically do have a certain risk factor to them. So new students, if somebody comes in and says, hey, how would you like to try this type of job or in this role and, and you don't think you're, quote unquote, ready for it? Studies show that females are more likely to need to be 98% confident in this role. Males are more like, I'm 70% confident, I'll wing the last 30%. And I tell my female students, don't let that get in your way. If they're asking you, they already think you can do the role. Don't discount yourself out of it. Be comfortable with taking that risk, having a few failures in the process, but learning from it, but overall exceeding. If you go in with that mindset that there's always going to be bumps in the road, careers are not a straight line, not everybody ends up being the perfect stepping stone right up into the corporate office, be comfortable with that. And then I think you're in good shape. The last thing I'll say is they talk about work-life balance, and I'm not sure balance is the right word on that, but certainly the ability to manage that interface between work and life. You can certainly set those boundaries that work for you, and it may be the clear eight to five type of thing, or it may be I take a two-hour break during the day, or, or however you and your company work, but make sure that you have your time. Because there's nothing worse than getting burned out and then just everything falls apart. It's you know, one of those slow things that happens. And by the time you realize it, it's usually too late. Right? So you got to be conscious of that. Steve, thank you for a great conversation and your insights about supply chain careers. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Supply Chain Careers podcast. Be sure to listen to other episodes and sign up to be notified when future episodes are released as we continue to interview industry-leading supply chain experts. This podcast is made possible by SCM Talent Group, the industry-leading supply chain executive search firm. Visit SCM Talent Group at scmtalent.com.
to search for or to post supply chain jobs. Visit the Supply Chain Job Board at supplychaincareers.com.